Well, today marks the beginning of a new series, the beginning of a new church year. Happy New Year. The beginning of Advent, the beginning of all of our preparations for Christmas. Uh, But our reading from Mark 1, do have it open, speaks of a far more fundamental kind of a beginning. And it says that it is, in fact, the beginning of the gospel. Uh, The word gospel is to do with news. Sometimes you'll find in very old translations of the Bible, the word gospel is translated evangel, from which we get words like evangelical and evangelism. It carries with it the idea that news is to be shared. It is to be spread about and propagated. You cannot just intuit the news. If something has happened in the news Uh, Maybe last night, you can't just know it by intuition when you wake up. You have to read it or hear it or or, or see it. Did you know that Tyson Fury tied in the big fight last night in L.A.? No? Well, maybe you didn't check the news. You couldn't have intuited that. I thought he was going to (laughs) win. Romans 10, 14 says it's exactly the same with the Christian news. You can't just intuit the gospel. Romans 10, 14 says, How are they to believe in him of whom they've never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? News must be shared before news can be received. And of course, this is no ordinary news we're looking at now. This is is good news. Gospel, the word gospel, literally means good news. It's a word that actually predates the Bible. In, in both pagan and Jewish culture, the word gospel, good news, it simply meant any tidings of joy at all. So a sort of Christmas carol phrase, tidings of joy. And uh, that meant the birth of, say, a royal son or the coronation of an emperor or all sorts of battlefield victories or, or feasts or festivals would be proclaimed or announced with A gospel with a written report, an evangel, a good news would be shared. And one of the facets, one of the unique facets of the Christian gospel is that it's not the good news of an event. It is the good news of a person. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. He is the good news. Jesus is the good news. The first clue as to why Jesus is good news, the good news, comes in his very name. His name, Jesus, it means God is salvation. His name alone testifies to this promise that God will save us. Now, save us from what? Save us into what? What do we need to do to be saved? Why do we need to be saved? Can't we be saved by something else? Is saved really a thing anyway, uh, all remain to be seen in Mark's gospel, but his name alone tells us that God thinks that saved is a thing, and that he is his plan for doing the saving. His name. Christ. Not a name, but a title. Christ. That means anointed one or messiah. This is the one they'd been waiting for, the promised Messiah. They'd been longing for the Christ for generations. 
And they didn't know everything about the Christ, and they didn't understand everything about the Christ, but they did know that he was coming, and they were looking forward to it, and they knew that when he arrived, it would be good news indeed. Son of God, an immensely significant title. This phrase, Son of God, came to kind of encapsulate everything that the Jewish people were hoping for. All of their hopes about the Messiah were fleshed out with this phrase, Son of God. It reminded them, for example, of God's promise to David to put a king on his throne forever. It reminded them of of God's promise through Isaiah, also known as Isaiah, to uh, be a mighty king. I'm not correcting you, I'm just foreign. Um, By the way, it's come to my attention that you don't uh, pronounce lasagna in the same way that I do. And I saw you all flinching every time I said it, and I knew something was... I just thought you hated Italian food. Who knew that it was really pronounced lasagna, or however it would be? Very posh in Fox Chapel, aren't you? The Isaiah, Isaiah, lasagna, lasagna, who, let's call the whole thing off, that guy. Uh, he said that there would be a mighty king and there would be a, a vulnerable, tender servant who would be bound up as one, this son of God. Someone with, with the mighty strength to do all things, but the tenderness not to crush us as he did it. These images of tenderness and strength combine in this hope of the son of God and reminds them of God's promise to dwell with them, to enflesh deity amongst them, to be proximate to them and to meet them where they are. And yeah, they might well have misunderstood numerous facets of the promise. They might well have had many gaps in their theology, but they longed for it and they knew it would be good when it happened. And all of that hope is bound up and fulfilled in one name and two titles, Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So what comes next is a wee bit strange. Normally, on the news, to authenticate the veracity of the news, at some point in the report, they will cut to a witness or maybe show a diagram or a chart or a graph or or something, get an expert in. They will do something so that it's not just a speech, but they're proving that they've got the news from somewhere. And to authenticate the veracity of the news and give some context so that we can really see that the news is good, one would expect some evidence here, perhaps from the Old Testament. One that says something like, there was a prophecy about this. One that said, here's the problem, here's the solution, and here it is unfolding before you. There are 600 detailed prophecies about Jesus Christ, the Son of God, in the Old Testament. Really detailed ones, in exquisite detail. 600 prophecies written 600 years before Christ fulfilled them about the nature and the location of his birth and the manner of his lineage and the miraculous works of his public ministry and the brutal experience of his death on our behalf and the reality of the resurrection afterwards. And all of these explaining why we might need any of that. So as we read about the good news, one would expect to cut to the expert diagram or source material or witness right now. 
One would expect to find a prophecy cited here, one of the, look, I said I would do it, I said why you would need it, and I've done it now, kind of variety. And we have one right here, a prophecy cited, Mark 1 verse 2, as it is written in that guy, the prophet. But it's not one directly to do with Jesus Christ, the Son of God at all. Rather, it's all about some other bloke. It's a prophecy about a prophet. Not about Jesus. It's a prophecy that just before Jesus comes, God would send one more prophet, one more herald, one more newscaster to announce the good news before Jesus comes, a messenger to proclaim the arrival of the good news. And Isaiah tells us twice why we might need such a thing, and that is because God wants us to prepare to receive it, or rather, to receive him. This is what Advent is all about. Advent is a season of preparation as we prepare to receive Jesus. And so the question before us in the next few weeks as Advent unfolds is really simple. How? How do we prepare to receive Jesus? The answer comes in one word. We find it in all of the readings. We find it in verse 4. Repent. Now, I'm well aware that a long sermon series on repentance doesn't sound all that fun. Or Christmassy. Or like good news. And I do wonder what you think of when I say the word repentance or repent. When I say that to you, what uh, feelings come up, what pictures are in your mind, maybe what spiritual wounds in your heart open up as I say this. I wonder, for example, does the call to repent make you feel guilty? Does it make you feel like you're not good enough? Does it make you feel ashamed? What if I were to turn up the spiritual heat and try and make you really squirm and use a churchier word? Penitence. How does that make you feel? And does it make you think of the word penance when you hear that? There is a, an etymological link between all of these words, repentance, penitence, penance. They're all associated words, but they have radically different meanings. A penance is the idea of making up for something wrong. In a sense, doing a penance is bad news. It is premised on the truth that you are a sinner, that you have fallen short of the glory of God and sinned, that you are just rotting flesh sacks belching forth the vapor of your sin sitting on these pews before me, and I'm one of you. I'm not just, you know, going for you. That was Karl Barth, Swiss theologian, who coined that phrase. But it's premised on the idea that we are miserable offenders and fall short of the glory of God, that we are not prepared to receive the good news. We're not ready. We're not good enough. We certainly are not ready for him to come and dwell with us and certainly not ready for him to dwell in us. But the concept of a penance leaves the burden of putting that right on you. It leaves you having to make yourself ready to receive God. In the medieval world, This concept of penance empowered the church to perpetrate all sorts of abuses. It included, for example, the idea of atonement, that is making up for sin, and the idea of expiation, that is wiping away of sin. And it left it down to you to do the atoning and the wiping away. 
it manifested itself, obviously, in self-punishment and self-mortification and self-denial and self-abasement. It was all about the self. What can I do? I've hurt God. How can I hurt myself in equal measure to make it up to him? It was all about how do we fix us. And it was premised on half a story, half the news, half the truth. The idea that every single one of us has fallen short of God's glory and half a lie. We must now make it back up to him. There are several problems with this theology. Uh, Firstly, it's stupid. And that's my first point. Uh, The idea of atonement is about paying off a debt. Well, if you are financially underwater, with what will you pay off your debt? If uh, you are in the middle of a swimming pool, in the deep end, out of your depth, and drowning and nowhere near the sides... How are you going to get out of the pool if you're not allowed to swim over to the side and climb out or bounce off the bottom? How are you going to get out? You need to be rescued if you're underwater and drowning. The idea of expiation of ourselves comes with a similar problem, the concept of wiping away sin. If you are a mess from head to toe, completely covered in in mud, and all of the equipment and and cloths you have to clean yourself are in the pool of mud with you, with what will you clean yourself up? It's like paying off a credit card with another credit card. Like taking a dirty rag and using it to wipe your dirty face. We've probably all done both of those things, especially if you're a student. Neither of these, though, is a long-term solution, is it? Both of these things leave you with the burden of feeling like there is still more for you to do. You've just transferred one mess to another place of your heart, but you still have the same fundamental problem that you started with. So not only is this idea of saving ourselves, atoning for ourselves, expiating ourselves demonstrably stupid, secondly, it is contrary to the entirety of Scripture. Nowhere is this idea presented to you And thirdly, plainly, neither is it good nor news. This is not news. This is what the world believes. It's what everybody innately believes. The natural religion of humankind is karma. What goes around comes around. I need to do this so that something good will happen to me. If I do this bad thing, something bad will happen to me. I need to make myself right and be good and be better. That's not news. That's what everybody thinks until they receive the news. The idea that I need to pull myself up by my own bootstraps. How do you do that without someone to lean on? The idea of repentance is wholly different to this idea of self-salvation. It takes the bad news, sin, and it adds to it the good news of God's grace. It says that, in fact, you can be rescued out of that pool underwater. You can have that debt paid off. You can be taken from that place of of besmirchment and soiledness and be cleaned by something external. That's why Jesus' name means God is salvation. God has a plan to step in and rescue you. And repentance has nothing to do with making it up to God and everything to do with him 
calling you by grace into his loving arms. In the Old Testament, there were two Hebrew words for repent. Both of them, I'm sure, were words that John's Jewish listeners would have known. The first one was to do with changing your mind. You do something wrong, you feel bad, you go, whoa, I'm not going to do that again. The second Jewish idea was one to do with turning back to God and saying, oh, that looks better, I'm going to do that instead. The two Jewish ideas uh, combine in the one New Testament Greek word that John was using, metanoia, and it literally means to change your mind. But you can't just translate word for word, you have to understand culture to culture, and in uh, Greek idiom, the changing of the mind was bound up with the changing of everything. Repent meant change everything. Turn everything upside down. Completely turn towards God and away from everything else in your heart, in your mind, intellectually, spiritually, the whole lot. And it is not linked here with something more for us to do. It is linked with something for us to receive. Repent is intimately tied to something done to you, not by you. Look at it. Baptism. This is an immersion. That's what a baptism is, from which you are lifted up. You don't baptize yourself. Someone baptizes you. And it's symbolic of submission, symbolic of a new start. Uh, Christian baptism is symbolic of death and and rebirth. It's symbolic of a completely clean slate, a blank sheet of paper. It's a symbol and a sign of God's willingness to change everything about you as you surrender to him, a washing clean, a being made new. And the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is that you are. Yeah. He doesn't see your sin. He sees his son when he looks at you. The purpose of of baptism is to symbolize Verse 4, forgiveness of sins. Not about earning, but about receiving forgiveness. And Jesus will thus present you, irrespective of what you have done or where you have been, as completely clean and completely worthy of receiving him dwelling in your heart by grace. Now, I don't think there's anything very clever about John's ministry. It's not fancy. It's not very well branded. Didn't have a website. No logo, no church mug. There's nothing actually uh, about his ministry that's particularly well packaged or cleanly branded. Uh, John appears, it says, verse 4, in the wilderness. The lesson from this is simple. Don't ever complain about having to find Christ Church Fox Chapel again. At least we're not in the wilderness. Don't moan about the potholes on the way up. At least we're not in the wilderness. And if, you know, you've moaned for the last year about how dull the old church bulbs were under the balcony and you don't like the shade of the new ones, uh, don't complain about that either. Though if they are looking quite white to you, there is a reason for this. Uh, The church has has now signed a deal with UPMC Urgent Care. And uh, (laughs) we're proudly in association with them and they've done our lighting for us. (laughs) Yeah, sorry about that. We will change them. John doesn't have any bulbs whatever you know rating they have whatever the the k number is he doesn't have any bulbs at all he's in a desert doesn't have a road doesn't have a church doesn't even have water and uh, not only is he in a desert john he it says here was clothed with camel's hair verse six 
What do you think he smelled like? Camel. Like, what's that smell, John? It's camel. Okay, good to know. Uh, he ate locusts. Sounds creepy. Apparently, it was normal for poor people at the time to do so as a source of protein. Uh, whether that is true or not, we can all agree it's gross. Imagine what he smelled like and looked like. Imagine what his breath was like. What have you been eating? Locust. <laughs> Takes away the smell of my clothes, you know. <laughs> oh. He's a radical desert preacher in the rugged tradition of Elijah. That's what he is. He's a wild man in the wilderness, eating wild food. And verse 5 says about this wild man in the wilderness, eating wild food, that all the country of Judea, all of it, and all Jerusalem were going out to him, continual present tense. There was a constant stream of people going out to see him and were being baptized by him, same present tense, active verbs. They were continuing to do this in the River Jordan, confessing their sins. Why on earth did they do that? Why would anyone go out into the desert, meet a stinking weirdo, and get into a filthy cold river where they did their washing, and then having done that, start talking about their worst of sins in front of everyone they knew? Who'd be up for that? If we were to do that now, this morning, would you want to come to the front, smell a camel, and then tell everybody what you've been doing? No one in the right mind would want to do that. Except for grace. Except for their confidence that they were going to find something that was not judgment for all of that. Except for their confidence that they were going to find something radically different from everything else they'd ever been taught or told by the world around them. The religion of the temple that they have is far more clean than this ministry, far more accessible. They live there and far more familiar. They've been living with it for years. The dress and the food and the practices of the rabbis and the priests in the temple were far more regulated, but it had done very little for them. It had done nothing to take away the burden that they felt of of their sin. If anything, I think it had probably added some burdens. Do this, do that, do this, do that to get right with God, and you're not quite there yet, but keep at it. So I think they may well have gone out into a physical desert to see John, but it was a spiritual desert that they were leaving behind. They were thirsty, so they went into a dry place to be refreshed with something far more lasting and far more gracious, and that is God himself. Something immersive, something outside of themselves, something given to them. Baptism is really significant. We call this one proto-baptism. It's not the baptism of Christianity that comes after the cross of Christ. It's not the baptism in the Holy Spirit that is prophesied in verse 8 that comes after Pentecost. It's just a sort of sign or symbol that they really are turning and doing something new. And really, that turning and doing something new is something done to them. It was not uncommon for for converts to Judaism to undergo proselyte baptism. That is, as they became a Jew, they were baptized as a symbol of becoming one. These people are already Jews. So the fact that they would undergo something so heavily symbolic of becoming something new is highly significant. It is them preparing for the fulfillment of all of their promises and a new and everlasting covenant that is going on right here. 
It speaks, doesn't it, of a real desire amongst them for a fresh start. They really must have thought it was good news. And they prepared. So Christmas is coming. Christmas is actually a time of pressure, I think, for many of us. Christmas is a time where uh, perhaps difficult family dynamics come out and difficult conversations are, are sometimes had if there's been a family fallout of some kind. And uh, for others, Christmas is difficult because it can be a time of grief. It can be a time where we've lost someone who is incredibly dear to us and Christmas reminds us of what we've lost. It can be both of those things, of course. Uh, Christmas is the time when my father-in-law died and, and we remember at George at Christmas with, with great sorrow. And whether either of those things are going on, difficult family dynamics and maybe loss, uh, for, for all of us, I think Christmas is also, even if it's really great, it's a time of frenetic busyness and activity as we run around from school play to school play and we get stuff shipped off to people who don't live here and we buy presents and we decorate the room and we run off to special events and we do this and that and all the other things. The, the average American spends $165 on Thanksgiving, 929 on Christmas. It is a time of real pressure and busyness. Now, there's nothing really, really wrong about spending money on fun stuff. There's nothing wrong with toys. There's nothing wrong with decorations. There's nothing wrong with, with parties and, and feasting together. It is a time of joy. We do spend money on it. But I think God is calling us before we get there. Instead of just rushing into Christmas and going crazy and collapsing on Christmas Day in a pile of, of turkey, I think we're being called instead to just chill out a bit in advance, to receive something, to repent turn away from all of those things in which we found our identity, that, that need to show off, that need to put ourselves right, that need to keep up with the neighbors and do the right thing and do what our kids need and do what our parents need. We're, we're called to just let go of some of that, to rest. Change down, man. Find your neutral space. Take the chill pill. The hippies got at least something right. To read. Maybe get up five minutes early and, and read a verse. Maybe go to bed five minutes early and go to bed listening to a Christian song. Just reset. Just wipe clean the slate. Repent. Turn. Prepare. Immerse. Receive the good news. And as Kat was discussing this with me, this uh, idea, she had in the image, uh, they had the image in her mind, I think possibly a prophetic word or picture in her mind from the Spirit, the image of a whiteboard in her mind. You know the kind of whiteboard that you maybe have in a place of work or in a kitchen where you write up to-do lists and, and things to do? I have a whiteboard on my office wall. Uh, at the bottom, I write prayers for, for people that are really significant, have real need. The top half, though, is completely filled with really big tasks that I still need to do uh, administratively in the church. There's uh, a membership process on there, liturgical changes, budget work, uh, something to do with the bishop, and there's some job descriptions that I need to accomplish. And every year what I do around this time of the year, having realized that I have accomplished absolutely none of them, is I just wipe them off. <laughs> Don't really achieve anything, but it feels good. But, uh, I noticed that when I wipe them off, the whiteboard never, 
ever looks completely new. You just smear whatever that marker is made of with the dust as well to the edges. And so there's a kind of skanky halo around the whole thing, though it's clear in the middle. It's a bit rough around the edges. And uh, these little bits of felt and fluff and pen are just testimonies to all of those things that I have actually failed to do. I kind of feel the burden of the whiteboard. And uh, every now and then, Someone comes into my room and and writes up a job for me to do. I don't even write it up myself. They put one on there for me. The worst of all sinners comes into my office and writes it on the board in a Sharpie. (laughs) Don't come off. Like an indelible, unwipe-awayable task remains on my whiteboard and there's nothing I can do to get it off no matter how hard I try and for many of us that is a symbol of what it is that we have left to do perhaps even a symbol of our sin it needs to be expertly wiped away by someone with the right equipment only one person can do it it's Bridget (laughs) it's not Bridget, it's Jesus we need someone to come in And take that burden away from us. That is Jesus Christ, the Son of God. An indelible task that is left for us to do. And a sort of halo of all of the echoes of things we've not quite done and put away. Are fulfilled and taken away and cleansed by Jesus Christ. And he gives us a brand new whiteboard with nothing written on it except for his righteousness alone. A fresh start, a white blank page, a repentance, a baptism, the forgiveness of sins. That is what repentance is about. And he simply says, receive it. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, as we begin a new church year, would we begin with a fresh slate. Something cleaned away. A fresh start, a new start. Would we receive the newness of Christ about ourselves? As we do so, would we be ready to receive him in a new way? Perhaps, Lord God, we've come in this morning with some burden of something done to us or maybe that we have done. And perhaps a combination of those things in human dynamics, sin and sinned against and sinned back. Lord God, if that's true, we, we just lay that before you at the foot of the cross and Picture ourselves having that wiped away. Father God, would we just turn to you, knowing that you will forget our sins and put them away and renew us completely in Christ Jesus, your Son. Amen.